He's kind of like the Joe Rogan of the hospitality industry right now. Running a short-term rental business is challenging and time-consuming. Whether it's 10 units or 1,000 units, trying to keep up with the latest trends, technology, hardware, revenue management, guest support, and R&D, it's become almost impossible and increasingly more expensive for the everyday host. On top of that, all of this tedious work does not allow you to focus on what matters most, and that is your guest. Luckily, this will no longer be a problem. Introducing Journey's MOS, the newest and most advanced tech solution in hospitality. Journey's MOS provides you with a one-stop solution that will automate your entire operation and take care of all of your back office work, allowing you to fully focus on growing your business the way you want to. To learn more about MOS, visit Journey online at journey.com. That's journey, J-U-R-N-Y.com. We needed to respect the investment of our current investors while also saying, hey, we're just, we're not worth quite what we were during lyric days. We needed to find ways that the creditors, and we ended up taking care of a lot of those obligations with this round, um, where they would be happy, right? In some cases, having a worse deal than they thought they were going to get when they wrote those debt vehicles. We needed to um, obviously convince new investors to give us capital. And they all needed to kind of come together at the, at the same time. But it was all predicated on, is there a there there? Is Wheelhouse doing enough interesting things in a differentiated fashion where if we all go through the pain of whatever it is, wherever this is going to end up, that is actually worth it? And luckily, there is a there there. Uh, and Wheelhouse um, is doing really uh, quite well. Uh, most specifically from a revenue, I mean, we've grown 100% in seven months. We grew 45% in Q1. There's like a there, there. Our, our our team, we won innovation of the year last year. We started to kick off this notion that like, oh, interesting. This team we used to think of mostly as an operating company is actually really good at technology. You're listening to Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, a podcast for those who are in and around the hospitality industry who love, live, and breathe what they do. You can join us for candid and unscripted conversations with hospitality experts and founders as we go deeper into their personal stories while they're sharing their triumphs and trials that got them to where they are today. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and you're listening to an episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. Now, let's begin. All right, everybody, welcome back to another special episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast. Uh, I'm here with a good friend, a mentor, someone who I look up to in the space of, you know, short-term rentals and vacation rentals, my good friend, Andrew Kitchell, who is the founder, CEO of Wheelhouse. And uh, Andrew, my man, I'm excited to have you on the podcast once again. 
so excited. I know we got a lot to cover today. Looking forward to it, Will. Of course. Well, uh, for all the listeners who may not have heard your story the first time you're on the podcast, uh, you have quite the extensive background, not only in tech, but within short-term rentals. And you're obviously a big cheerleader and big fan of the space. Uh, you and I have had many conversations about what the future looks like, which again, a lot of stuff we'll cover into the, the, um, episode today. So for all the listeners who haven't heard the story, check it out. It'll be in the show notes, but for everyone who hasn't, and you know, isn't going to go back to the first episode of, of, uh, you and I talking, uh, let's jump in. Where does your story really begin with one entrepreneurship, but then two getting into short-term slash vacation slash flex slash co-living, whatever people want to call it, uh, uh, vacation rentals. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll do the short and sweet cause I've been doing entrepreneurship stuff for 15 years. The short, the f- short version, I arrived in San Francisco 15 years ago, not necessarily knowing, uh, a ton about the startup space, but, uh, moved into a home where a lot of people were starting businesses and, and it became clear that, oh yeah, of course, every business is started by an individual who had a vision energy, passion around an idea. Um, kind of living in the Bay Area exposed me to people taking a lot of risk. Started to meet a bunch of teams, including people in the Y, kind of Y Combinator, early startup accelerator space, got into the real estate technology about 12 years ago. And then um, through a series of, of very fortunate occurrences and a little bit of hustle, got invited to be the CEO of an early stage company called Beyond Pricing. Actually, it was called Beyond Stays at the time. I uh, ended up pivoting that company to beyond pricing after about three months, uh, the kind of back in the day when looking at the short-term rental space, there really wasn't the plethora of technology that we see today. Our space was still an afterthought, right? People were trying to figure out in urban environments, whether you could put a professional coat of paint on certain listings and start to drive more value or create more value from them. So. It was a really kind of amazing era in the short-term rental space. It was really before short-term rental space and the VR space had really overlapped even, or would overlap as much as they do today. But um, got brought in, became fascinated with the space. I'd already been a host before on Airbnb. I had paid for early businesses by renting out my place on Airbnb. So kind of loved the category from a bunch of different dimensions. But from the early days at Beyond Stays slash Beyond Pricing, I've gone on to build a couple other companies in the category, both operating companies, Lyric, we'll probably cover a little bit of that story today, as well as the company I run today, Wheelhouse. So um, lucky to have learned and to love the category from a bunch of different angles. And I'll pause there, happy to answer any additional questions though. I, I always love the like story of a tech founder where you've also been an operator before. Uh, I find that unique because there's a lot of people that get into tech they maybe experience something as a traveler uh, and they're like, I'm going to solve this problem. And then they try to get into a space that probably won't let them in because they're an out quote unquote outsider. Uh, so you've hosted on Airbnb, you've, you've been an operator with Lyric. Um, so kind of talk to us about Lyric because we know this is going to play a big role into the story of wheelhouse. And for the listeners that don't know, Wheelhouse is a dynamic pricing software for vacation rental management companies and hosts all alike to really take more revenue. And of course, what does that mean? More money, baby. So um, let's, uh, can you tell us like, what's the story of Lyric? Because sure. I think this has a big, a big play into what obviously has happened with, you know, the wheelhouse fundraise and, and everything else has gone in. So we'd love to, to know the little backstory there. Yeah, sure. So Lyric um, 
was a urban property management play, really a new type of hospitality brand that was designed for corporate travelers. And what Lyric was interested in was we were looking at, um, over the course of a couple of years, we came to be kind of trusted by a bunch of large real estate companies. And what we were able to do is we were able to go to them and say, hey, you have these large apartment buildings. What if we took a floor of your building or two floors or half of the building and converted them to short-term rentals and really ran um, kind of a, almost like a hotel-like experience out of the buildings whereby your building would now have both kind of long-term residents as well as short and mid-length guests coming and staying in your space. And it was really an extension of earlier learnings that we had had around like what happens when you apply beautiful uh, design and decor to a short-term rental space. And the, the early obvious learnings were better design almost always equated to the, to the ability to earn more from your space. Now, what if we took those early learnings around design and applied those to a full, again, full floor or full building? That was what Lyric was trying to prove. So Lyric, um, over the course of convincing uh, first one real estate company to give us a full floor of inventory in about 2017, over the course of the next two years, up until kind of 2019, 2020, we ended up partnering with 25 of the top 50 real estate companies in America. And we were able to walk into the boardroom and say, hey, your narrative about short-term rentals is wrong. This is not a space just for backpackers and, batch and bachelor parties. Business travelers are starting to use this inventory as well. And the reason, kind of interestingly, the reason a bunch of these folks went from first distrust, kind of having a large amount of distrust for the short-term rental space, all of a sudden embracing it and partnering with Lyric and other companies like Sonder and Stay Alfred and others was because these people at the same time were seeing that about a third of all the people who walked in the door to their building were no longer saying, I want to sign a year or 18 month lease on an unfurnished room, buy all the furniture and move in. Mm -hmm. so, so they're like, well, shoot, we've got a third of our people not even wanting what we're selling anymore. We need to figure out what they're willing to buy. So partnering with Lyric was a way to explore that. And from Lyric's perspective, we were really focused on proving out that we could attract a lot of customers to the building. And eventually kind of by leveraging these, um, these apartments that maybe weren't perfectly designed for short-term rentals, we were actually hoping to prove over time that you could build an entire new type of hospitality slash kind of residential living company where you would select or build buildings from the ground up, custom designed around the needs of these new folks, right? So, obvious design changes. In an apartment, you're gonna have a huge fridge. Well, if your average guest is saying five nights, do you need a huge fridge or can, can you get away with something smaller? Um, in residential living, lighting isn't necessarily great. In hospitality, light and bright wins. Mm -hmm. So Lyric was, um, and we'll talk about what happened to Lyric during COVID, um, and even before it was, it's a really tough operational business to build. Um, but Lyric was really a, a business kind of predicated on the belief that the world was changing, how people, when they traveled or where they lived was changing, that you could create amenity rich spaces and a beloved brand that would attract people to almost any location. And eventually with success of that brand, you could actually maximize the value of any piece of real estate through technology that lowered your operating costs. We'll talk more about that technology stack today, as well as a brand that created kind of superior um, loyalty among customers. Uh, that's, 
and unfortunately, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about what happened with the experiment uh, as we go. <laughs> well, more, it's more questions on that. Yeah, you know, definitely. And uh, the, I think the key thing for anyone who's listening is that you know the keywords that you're using are was trying, and instead of did and is doing, um, is a big play. And I kind of want to know for for overall because this is you know you mentioned a couple names Sonder, say Alfred, etc that have mm-hmm. been, been doing something like that, you know, what is it? Like you also said, it's a very operationally heavy, um, business. So when it comes to this design upgrade to lighting, to a little bit more tech, and of course there's turnover involved, what, who, whose responsibility was it to finance this, this yeah. change, especially when the residential buildings, I mean, you know, like you said, they're empty apartments when they, when they get you know rented. So who, who is covering that cost? We were. So the interesting part about uh, Lyric was when we kind of push into this space, and sometimes sometimes when you're building in a startup, like a little bit of regulation is actually maybe a good thing because if you can build right up against what's legal, you might actually have kind of a little moat from people who might not be able to navigate the legal landscape as well. Um, in our case, too, we were having to walk into the boardrooms of these large companies and convince them to lease out their spaces to us. And the first deals, um, we did sign leases and we did pay for all the furniture and we did take all of the risk, right? Wow. That is really what Lyric was basically doing. And the reason we, we ultimately raised a hundred million dollars of venture capital from folks who wanted to scale this idea with us. Um, but we took all the lease or all the risk, sorry. And, um, we were okay with that partly because the notion was if you grew fast enough and proved enough differentiation that eventually it would support the business model and you could start to split the risk with real estate owners, much in the way that uh, hotel operating companies and property companies split the risk as well, mm-hmm. split the investment and split the risk. Um, in our space, that like, everything was too new for people to say, hey, we'll, we'll, let's look at the management model as opposed yeah. to the lease model. So, um, you know, what? when you're right, when I was using words, there you know, we did this, we learned this, uh, obviously what we lost lyric during COVID is that is a short and sweet of it. Um, and when, when COVID hit, uh, I like to say, it's like, it's hard to imagine a worse spot to be than a venture backed, least exposed, urban corporate travel focused hospitality company. Mm-hmm. Just really not a place you want to be. And, um, if, you know, if, if a, Global pandemic was a once out of every five years or 10 years likelihood. Lyric, the, the model we were pursuing, the rapid growth model that we and others were, were pursuing would never have been, um, like you wouldn't have been able to put capital around the idea. However, it was a little bit of an aberration, which meant that we and others were um, scaling really quickly. Uh, we saw a lot of promise in what, you know, extremely high guest reviews, uh, really beloved properties, uh, the promise of technology to be able to run distributed operations. Like the promise is actually there. Uh, and other people post COVID and um, even during COVID started, have started to build even, even larger businesses than where Lyric and other people were at the time. Um, like the space is obviously coming back in a pretty amazing way. Uh, Lyric was not in a position to survive COVID though, bluntly put. Do you, do you go with the term like, a lot of people either on the show or people that we've talked to, you know, timing is everything. Do you think it was just the wrong time 
for for Lyric? Um, I think if COVID had hit three months later, even we're looking at a dramatically different story. That said, it wasn't that Lyric had it all figured out, right? I mean, we managed, we went from um, zero multifamily buildings to 25 over three years. That's extremely fast growth. I think some of my reflections even pre-COVID were we actually needed to focus on kind of quality of both kind of uh, operations as well as revenue performance, even pre-COVID. But at that, I mean, we came into March of 2020 with our best revenue numbers ever. We were about to sign a major deal where we would have actually been able to start moving leases off our books. We had a second, you know, Airbnb letter series B. We had a second major OTA about to sign up with a sign a partnership with us that would have kind of um, really opened up some opportunities in our opinion. But uh, that that really wasn't it. Wasn't to be. I mean, it, again, when I say three months later, if COVID had hit, I think we we were. I think we would have been well positioned to raise capital pre-COVID and position the company maybe even to be a buyer coming out of COVID, but we'll never know, right? It, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like everything was running smoothly. Uh, there are plenty of things we wanted to change or improve about Lyric even before COVID hit, but COVID was like, COVID was a death knell. And like for a lot, you know, I actually thought that WeWork, which had imploded kind of nine months before us pre-IPO, I thought that was kind of uh, gut punch number one. And gut punch number two was COVID. And that destroyed the capital environment that had made kind of the rapid scaling of our business and kind of therefore the risk profile we were willing to take on possible. That's, that's really, yeah. I, I always think about that. Cause like, what, what if, you know, but you, you, you kind of just said, we'll never know. Um, yeah. But like you, the story behind it, and this is where, where I really wanted to have this conversation with you on the episode was that you were one able to spin something out of it. So wheelhouse is now born, uh, officially from that risen from the ashes, we'll call it. Um, but I want to ask just some, you know, I, you're a big fan of entrepreneurship. You're always encouraging other entrepreneurs, whether they're in, they're in our space or they're not in our space. And for you as a founder, can, can you, what was it like to go through that, the, through the, the, the fall of Lyric, just because one, I know like we'll, again, we, we know wheelhouse is a, is a spinoff and it, it's risen from the ashes and it's a great product. And it was, it was something salvage, salvageable, I think is how you say it, uh, from, from that, but from a founder's perspective, like what, give us uh what happened like with you personally, what, what was that like on the, the back end? Yeah. Um, it was incredibly sad. Um, I mean, imagine the elation of thinking that you're going to sign a business deal and you're coming in with record revenue. And even though it's been a hard battle, design a brand that you love and build this thing. Um, you know, March 1st, when everything fell apart, I remember I was biking home from the office and I called um, I called our board member, Rick Yang at NEA, and I said, Hey, the, the deal with this company fell apart. If that deal fell apart, like sayonara short-term rental in industry in the near term. Like this, this is a this is a bad canary in the coal mine. And Rick called me back a couple hours later and he said, We're gonna make really tough decisions starting tomorrow. Get really good sleep. We're gonna do this together. And he actually called, there's another 
another investor, Tony from SignalFire, and, and they actually collectively called me together and, and we started to say that. Um, and there were incredibly comfortable, like incredibly uncomfortable decisions that needed to be made, which was um, when you looked at the landscape of, you know, let's, let's look at like normal survival or kind of recovery times for hospitality. The, the numbers you usually fall back on are like, okay, well, after 9-11, New York took five years to recover. And after Katrina, New Orleans has never recovered. So what's going to happen to a global pandemic? Should we expect a one, three, five, or a decade-long downturn? Mm. Should we expect hospitality ever to look the same? And, and our answer was, we don't know, but we don't, we're not in a cash position to wait around to figure it out. And we do have this interesting technology that we could still potentially salvage. Don't know if that's going to respond either. You know, don't know if the hospitality space is going to be gone. So the incredibly difficult decision we started making and, and ultimately made 18 days later was we needed to say goodbye to 135 teammates out of 150. We needed to start negotiating out of 25 different leases where if any lease had sued us, we would be out of business. So we might work for six months and then be gone. We needed to uh, convince slash collaborate with teammates who we said, hey, tomorrow we're going to be a technology company and we're building. And sure, that revenue line has also dropped 80% because Wheelhouse was already a public-facing product at the time. But a lot of those businesses and a lot of people we worked with ended up going out of business as well. Um, and, oh, by the way, uh, we can't promise you any equity. And we have debt that, you know, might be a scenario where we actually don't make it through at all. Um, but you kind of have to put on a face and start to find your way. And that's really scary. It's really embarrassing. You're like, oh man, I believe in this thing. I've got to go talk to teammates who I love and tell them that like, A, we don't have a job for them and we can't afford to pay them. And that's kind of a little bit, it's a definite hit of the ego and it's sad. And it's um, like, I think what, what we kind of try to go through and I think for other entrepreneurs, I think the, the healthiest thing we did was try to reframe our opportunity as quickly as possible. And I think shortly after May or March 18th, which is the day we ultimately said goodbye to a bunch of teammates, um, we had to figure out the new narrative that resonated both with ourselves and resonated to a team to be able to have a chance at the build out, right? So we had to actually quickly process the sadness and the discomfort and embarrassment, frankly, and get to a position where we were in build mode. And it needed to happen really fast or else we we're gonna lose truly everything. So that was, I don't know, even now I'm like, God, did I fully process Lyric? Maybe not. Uh, I know that very quickly we had to get uh, and truly did get excited about like, okay, well, let's be the team that took the gut punch and, and, and survived it and built out. And when other entrepreneurs get into really tough spaces, uh, we will be there to talk to them and illustrate like what can be done. Hopefully, should we make it through? And we really rallied as a team around, around that idea. Um, and honestly, it felt very liberating. It felt like we all of a sudden, since we'd gone from raising $100 million, having a lot of pressure, okay, of course, you know, success was eminent, was, was kind of the way I think some folks thought about it. We, we didn't necessarily believe that. But um, to, oh my goodness, we just got hit by a cataclysmic global event. No one's expecting us to survive. Guess what? We get to take huge swings. 100%. Uh, well... I was going to say for me, I kind of, 
Well, I never knew, like, I was just getting really heavily into the space uh, in 2019, quit my day job as a hotel manager, started getting to know all the short-term rental tech companies from NoiseAware to, you know, uh, AirDNA, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, COVID happened. Everyone was like, what the hell? Either they went out of business, they got laid off, or had to really just put their head down. And then, and then one day... I feel like the industry just kind of started picking up. There's all the fighters. It just felt like I just, I don't know, in my head, I didn't really see it happen. But in my head, I can see just a bunch of people pushing this big boulder uphill and just not stopping. And there's a lot of people that have left along the way. And there's just this group of just people that are just pushing and fighting. And, you know, one day I, I get a LinkedIn message from you saying, hey, listen to a couple podcasts. I love what you're doing would love to love to chat and like teach you or not teach you, but tell you about what we're doing at wheelhouse. Never heard of wheelhouse in my life. <laughs> never heard of you. Never knew that you were involved with beyond never anything. Um, I actually didn't even know lyric. I only knew of the single family operations on vacation rentals because that's what I was introduced to. I was never actually introduced to multifamily. So the whole story of lyric and everything that you guys have done was brand new to me. And then all of a sudden here you are, you know, I think we met in early 2020, uh, if not uh, if not late 2020, early 2021, and here you are, you know, with the announcement of a 16 million dollar uh, fundraise for for Wheelhouse. So it's just crazy to see like that that entrepreneurship story that you're you're talking about. That maybe if entrepreneurs get into a, a pinch or they get to a tight corner, they can look and reflect on the story that you just told and and take take a lot of learning lessons from that. And I would love to just from your, your, the founder's point of view, um, outside of maybe not processing lyric, uh, uh, enough, but what was the biggest takeaway that happened, you know, getting that switching that mentality from Holy crap, we're having to make this big decision, telling the team we're a tech company tomorrow, um, uh, versus an operation co, uh, to now, again, where you guys are today, what was the big takeaway lessons that you had uh, from the team and from you and from everything that just kind of happened, especially the investors, which sound like they were very much uh, on your side um, from the beginning, whether they knew they're going to lose their investment with Lyric or, or not. Yeah. I mean, Again, the opportunity in a downturn is to learn maybe more about building a business than you ever learn in the high times. And entrepreneurship, I've, I've thought of for a long time as a really long road. I think the narrative is often like, oh my goodness, you're going to hit it out of the park and capital is easy and you're going to be the next famous you know, Zuckerberg who quits college and makes it. And that is a version of entrepreneurship. Definitely. And it's really impressive and uh, difficult to emulate because some, like so many of those stories are so unique. But then I think there's the other version of entrepreneurship, which is tied to the notion of never give up. Mm-hmm. And that everything you go through is a little bit of a, it could be viewed as a challenge or an opportunity to make you a better team or leader or company that will ultimately succeed. And I think the, um, I think the biggest lessons that, uh, we learned were like, okay, well, if we are unwilling to give up, (laughs) 
there are actually a couple of different things. There are multiple paths through. Some of them are more painful than others. Like, you know, you could go through a bankruptcy and reorganize an organization. You could do other, other kind of similar processes. And you only really learn about these things either probably in business school or in some book or unfortunately when you have to face them yourselves. But there's, there's a little bit of a reality of, well, if, if you truly think there's value to be created and you're unwilling to give up, you can capture the opportunity. So that lesson number one was truly like, I guess maybe lessons number one and two were like, look at these challenges and opportunities. They are new opportunities. They are going to make you a better operator, even if they don't make, you know, they don't mean this business is a success. Um, part two is like, yeah, that, that kind of, um, if you really can truly look yourself in the mirror and say, there's an opportunity here and you work with good people, you'll almost always find an alignment through which all parties can create more value by collaborating. By that, I mean, talking to investors, talking to potentially creditors or other folks and saying, Hey, um, we all know that in this, in our case, Lyric, we raised a bunch of money. However, we need to reposition or spin out this organization uh, in such a way that our teammates own a significant chunk of this company again, or else like, what are we all doing here? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? Like we need, we need to really look at, we need to right size this company for, for lack of a better term and, and take care of the cap table in order to position this team ultimately to create a, a really large outcome. Um, and, th and that kind of like, if you, um, Again, if you don't if you don't give up and you're able to go have like very candid, open conversations with the folks, like it's it's surprising how often people will align around like, well, let's just create the most value together. What does that look like? Oh, it looks like you doing X, this person doing Y, our team doing X. And uh there's usually actually a really good collaborative outcome that can emerge. It's not easy. It's tons and tons of conversations. Um, but there is a path forward. Right. And then I think the last thing, and then I'm, I'm happy to share more, I mean, probably like 20, minimum 20 different lessons here. But I do think like when, when times change, cause you know, your business will inevitably change in success or, you know, success or failure. Um, your company's narrative will change probably every 12 to 24 months minimum. And when those moments occur, like as an entrepreneur, as a leader of an organization, going deep and really finding that narrative that is like true and resonates and creates value is actually a really fun practice. But like we needed to find our new narrative that all of us were going to get out of bed for every single day and say, we want this really, really badly and we're best positioned in the world to create this new company and this new idea. And if we didn't believe that, again, like what are we doing? Right? It, none of it would have made sense. So, um, Happy to pause there, Will, or maybe maybe I'll also say like I I do believe that hard times have made personally is like I'm a way better leader than I ever was. I'm way more thoughtful about capital deployment. I'm way more thoughtful about every single teammate I hire. I'm uh, more capable of ha handling the difficult conversations that that all entrepreneurs have to go through. Right. So, am I thankful for those lessons? No and yes. Um, no, I miss my teammates dearly who I got to build lyric with. Yes, we get to have a new opportunity and a fun story to share that again, hopefully, uh, hopefully helps a few other people who are battling through some, through some tough instances in, in their own entrepreneurial paths. No, it's, it's, uh, you just answered my next question, which was, you know, what, did, what did this teacher, your, you and your leadership and how does it affect your leadership style? And, um, obviously you just stated, you know, that's, uh, a really great takeaway. 
Um, but coming from a non fundraising entrepreneurial background, uh, on my end, I'm curious to know what does this look like in, in the sense of restructuring, because uh, I, I didn't know that Wheelhouse was a, a customer-facing product prior to uh, Lyric closing, so that's a new information for me. But yeah. how does that look like when you're now, you're, which I think the greatest advice, I, when I think of investment, I get scared because I think of like a, you know the TV on a, on a movie or a TV show, they make the board look like scary people. They're going to they're gonna backdoor you, all this stuff. Um, but the fact that you just stated, you know, you're able to be, have genuine, honest conversations with your creditors and investors and be like, Hey, look, we need to restructure, uh, for multiple reasons. And a big one is our team does have ownership and two, uh, it's just going to be better off overall for the company and for your investment that you had prior. So what does this look like? How do you, outside of the genuine conversation, how do you restructure this type of raise, uh, especially to cover some, some of the, the previous, you know, debt? Yeah. Oh, it, this is, that's the last seven months in a nutshell. So I will try to distill it down. Um, it starts with having people, either board members or teammates. In my case, I had two teammates who, uh, really deserve the majority of credit for this financing round. The three of us collaborated very tightly on both the, the both the narrative of what we're doing, as well as the financials, as well as the, uh, the restructuring that would work for all parties. But uh, if I hadn't had people who had seen it or done it before and I trusted deeply, no way, um, no way we pull this off. That's part one. Because you, you have to learn how to speak both the investment language and the, the creditor language to be able to, to not throw ridiculous things at the wall and not to get terrified and to stand up for what is right uh, on your own behalf, right? You got to defend your teammates. So I would say... Um, it starts with having, um, you know, the, the team you want to go through something like this with, you actually started working with years ago. Mm. <laughs> and that's why it's so important to have the right investors and have the right teammates around the table. Because like when stuff like this happens, like if you were not in a position where you really love the people you were going to be doing this with, like you wouldn't attempt it. Right. So first is like, do you have a right, the right team either internally or externally or the right folks to turn to, to be able to get really good. Tr trusted and tough advice throughout what will be a very lengthy process. Part one. Um, part two, there has to be a there, there, right? We wouldn't have restructured and gone through the thousands. That's probably not an exaggeration. Thousands of hours of meetings, both over the course of like after losing Lyric in March of 2020, um, we, every single month would talk to creditors, investors, everyone, and tell them exactly what we were doing and where we were investing and what swings we were taking and what was working and what wasn't. Even we almost started meeting more with investors and others uh, after after COVID when it was like, hey, we're not clear if this is going to work either, but like, got to go for it. Um, and over kind of um, a few swings, which we don't have time to talk about, we tried a few different things. We actually thought that the best path, kind of what became clear after about three to six months, was the best path was taking Wheelhouse, which was a B2C product, really targeting people who had kind of been very little go to market before uh, COVID and saying, well, we learned a bunch of lessons at Lyric and we built a bunch of technology at Lyric that wasn't even surfaced on the wheelhouse product. Maybe that product brought to market with some enhancements. We'll talk about those if we want. Hmm. 
is actually the most, like, given any state of hospitality recovery, whether hotels return, short-term rentals return, mid-length returns, et cetera, maybe that tool set is the thing that gives us the best chance of emerging. And it took us, you know, I mentioned we, we lost Wheelhouse, lost 80% of its revenue line. More than 50% of our customers literally disappeared, went out of business, or switched to, like, long-term rentals because we were Wheelhouse was mostly an urban single-family home product at that point. Um. But it took us at least nine months to get even back to close to the revenue we were doing pre-COVID. Uh, we launched Wheelhouse Pro, which was really aimed at B2B customers after 10 months of building. Mm. During that time, a few teammates had left. We had to go kind of scrap together other teammates. That was really hard. But we finally built and launched something that we thought was pretty darn compelling. It went from being a pricing tool to pricing and market reports and competitive sets and now other things. Um, and then we needed to <laughs> convince creditors that we weren't going to pay them any more interest until we were able to raise cash. Cause if we didn't raise cash, you know, we were building to oblivion and we needed to start putting together a package of what our company could look like post fundraise. that would work for all parties. And Might that meant, take on the, the whole world while you're at it. <laughs> that meant, yeah, it was yeah. fun. It meant our team needed to be in a good position. We needed to respect the investment of our current investors while also saying, hey, we're just, we're not worth quite what we were during Lyric days. We needed to find ways that the creditors, and we ended up taking care of a lot of those obligations with this round, um, where they would be happy, right? In some cases, having a worse deal than they thought they were going to get when they wrote those debt vehicles. We needed to um, obviously convince new investors to give us capital. And they all needed to kind of come together at the, at the same time. But it was all predicated on, is there a there there? Is Wheelhouse doing enough interesting things in a differentiated fashion where if we all go through the pain of whatever it is, wherever this is going to end up, that is actually worth it. And luckily, there is a there there. Uh, and Wheelhouse um, is doing really uh, quite well. Uh, most specifically from a revenue, per I mean, we've grown 100% in seven months. We grew 45% in Q1. There's like a there, there. Our, our, our team, we won innovation of the year last year. We started to kick off this notion that like, oh, interesting. This team we used to think of mostly as an operating company is actually really good at technology. Um, and, the, and we were lucky to have teammates who are extremely deep in their field. And in some cases, you know, our data science team, it's the same data science team we took, like, they're beyond, Right. Eight years later, we're still collaborating. We've run the, in, our, in the case of being, um, because we were Lyric as an operating co, yes, we had the obligations that we needed to kind of transform through this fundraising process. That's the downside. The upside was like, investors, you have a team that fought through fire when there was nothing probably to be had. I like to tell the team now, I'm like, if I knew how hard it was going to be to restructure this, I would, it would have been irresponsible of me to tell you to battle through this, but we, we love working together and we have domain depth across data science and DevOps and front end design and development and customer service and all these other components that actually go into a really strong company with great fundamentals, better fundamentals than Lyric actually ever had. So I think, um, you know, <laughs> Is there, 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 leads to the restructuring. We're lucky to have a ton of our investors who battled through it, like north of 90% decided to reinvest in this round. We added some great new folks around the table too. 
and we ended up kind of ultimately landing in a place where I'm, I'm more excited about the business than ever. And I think there is this kind of like, whether it's through a little bit of blind faith or trust in the team and trust in the kind of extended team of investors we had around the table, we kind of just decided let's put our heads down and build. Let's put faith that all the people around the table ultimately will be adults in the room. And should we find it there, there will all be aligned. We'll actually be aligned around creating value in the most fair way, fat, the most fair way possible. And I truly believe that's what happened. Uh, I, I don't think I could have put that together better myself, the way you kind of just phrase and sum that up. Cause it's, it's a lot of new, like what you guys did. Like, I, I love, this is my favorite part of the job, right? Like seeing the tech crunch article go out wheelhouse raises 16 million. Great. Love it. It's, it's a great, um, it's a great press release. Now we get to jump into what really went behind it. Cause a lot of people always see the highlights. They don't see that when you put your head down and you and your team, put your head down for X amount of months and didn't pop out, didn't, didn't make any noise, just built and built and built and built. And just was, was just consistent in that, in that, um, in that drive of just fighting the fight and moving forward whether you knew what was going to happen. And I wrote that down when we had our, our, our discussion about this episode was that, you know, if I had known it would have been unresponsive or irresponsible of me to tell the team to keep fighting, it would have been a horrible leadership call, but thankfully that's the good thing about the future. We don't know. Uh, so you, you were able to get that team. And I think that shows a big piece of a lot of our industry. I I've noticed that the short-term rental, uh, segment of hospitality is very much like this. It's very much when everyone believes in a product or a service or, or a, a team, a leader, they just get behind it. It just happens, right? Like we don't see a lot of, um, bailing or jumping of ship. Right. So yeah, maybe not. I'll, I'll, re, I'll rephrase that. Maybe of course we don't see it, but I don't think it happens as often as we, we all think, uh, compared to other industries and maybe other segments of, uh, hospitality. Well, this, this is, I mean, I, I agree. And I actually think, um, probably the, the parts that, that go into it are one is like, this is an extremely entrepreneurial space. Mm -hmm. Like one of the reasons I'm so bullish on the category and why I, I, I keep, you know, I'm so passionate about building businesses in it is like, it is the ultimate entrepreneurial space where so many people run their own businesses That's part one. Part two is like, it's, it's definitely partly a passion business. Cause you, you know, so many of these entrepreneurs have brands that they're really proud of where they have, um, you know, their, their name on the business in many cases. Mm -hmm. And part three is like, it's a really people centric business. If you're an operator, you are a property manager, you know, the people you're working with, you know, the ownership groups you're working with often for years, if not decades. If you are uh, in a vacation rental destination, you might've hosted the same families for 30 years, right? There's a lot of pride, passion, and entrepreneurship in this category. And that's like, uh, in some ways, like the most obvious example of how that played out is not, yes, the loyalty of, of people to, to various teams. Um, but look what happened during the pandemic, how quickly all these businesses pivoted so much faster than hotels. Yeah. That's a hundred percent true. Than any class. Right. And all of a sudden you had all these people being like, Hey, we have updated our cleaning standards. We updated our images. We updated our messaging. We updated everything. Didn't need permission. Did it. Cause it was the right thing to do. 
and we're changing all these other things based on what we're seeing in our market. And like, if they weren't experimenting, their neighbor was. <laughs> and like, it's, it's so interesting because I think that entrepreneurial thing, like looking back, it explains some of the response to COVID. Of course, there are other things that played a factor in that. But looking forward is why I believe to this day that most operational and technology or a lot of the kind of innovation in the hospitality and accommodations category is actually going to come from the short-term rental space because you have so many self-empowered entrepreneurs, hustlers, and builders who move really fast and they take risks quickly and they innovate. And that's not necessarily the, the, the stereotype that people thought about our space, but it's, it's true. And it's way easier as a tech company to break into short-term rentals than it is to hotels. Way easier. So, of course, that's going to lower barrier to innovation means more innovation. Well, I was going to say, and coming from the hotel world, uh, a lot of my hotel friends that are familiar with the podcast or familiar just with stuff that we do uh, in general, I'm getting the most amount of questions now about short-term rentals than I ever did uh, back in 2019. Everyone's like, oh, that's cute. You you run a couple Airbnbs. Like, aw, so cute. Um, but then now the number one question, like everyone's like, holy crap, this is way more professional, way more fast with growing way more tech in, uh, uh, more tech enabled than, than we ever thought. Like I just heard of you know, Airbnb, right? Like that's what everyone thinks of when they get exposed, you know, to the actual operations, the tech, the innovators, the founders, the, the teams, the, the concepts that we're putting out, um, the more and more response I'm getting, like, what? I didn't know about that. Like, that's crazy. Um, and yeah. so you're hundred percent right. And you, you're kind of talking and you, you referenced moving forward. You know, you think this is going to be the space that's going to have the most innovation for the, the, the sector. Uh, I want to know that, you know, the question for you is what is it like moving forward? What's next? You know, we'll, now that you are kind of out of the ashes, right? You're, you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. What is next for, you know, um, Aries investment for wheelhouse and for the growth and be, you know, behind, you know, what you guys are building and what you have built and how you're going to sustain the, the foundation that you have built now. Yeah, we, um, great question. So honestly, early innings for the category, um, and by category, I mean, let's, let's say wheelhouse wheelhouse works. Yes. We're revenue management for short-term rentals and vacation rentals. Our category has a couple competitors, not a lot. Um, I would say not as much as uh, property management softwares. Nope, not as much as like hotel revenue management. There's a lot more hotel revenue management software out there. So like, yeah. um, our our space, like if if our category does well, we will start to bump into hotels in the next couple of years, right? And I think what Wheelhouse is investing in the near term is um, there is a there's a ton of opportunity just in the pure vacation rental and urban short-term rental space. So Wheelhouse's mission number one is to take Wheelhouse Pro, the product that won Innovation of the Year, and build it at least twice as good, right, in the next six months, right? I think there's a plethora of features, product lines, et cetera, integrations that we can and should add as quickly as possible to address, um, you know, areas of improvement that I and our customers want. And expect to see. So investment number one is in the core wheelhouse offering for short-term rental folks. Investment number two is we are fascinated by mid-length stays. 
This is 30 day plus to 10 month stays. Traditionally known as kind of corporate rental space. Uh, now maybe looking more like flex living slash flex work slash, you know, extended travel experiences. But when you look at that category, it's, it's probably fair to say that it's at least as big as the short-term rental space. So if you said the short-term rental space is called 180 to $200 million, sorry, billion dollars a year, corporate rentals are the same, roughly the same, right? So area number two for us is we look at that court category and we're like, no one's pricing that well. Mm-hmm. And now there's a ton of data signal that we've been looking at for kind of six, 12 months saying like, okay, well, we know we can price this better. And all the things that have gone into designing a, a, a pricing engine for the short-term rental space appear to actually be really well suited to addressing mid-length. So when you look at the challenges of pricing short-term rentals, you look at, you know, think of Airbnb and other and VRBO as merchandising revolutions, right? People used to buy a hotel room. They bought a bed and a television. Now they're buying a porch pool, patio, Wi-Fi, parking, pet policy, cancellation policy, et cetera. Figuring out what those attributes are worth is the challenge of our category. And guess, guess who mid-length is going to borrow from? Are they going to merchandise like a hotel or are they going to merchandise more like a short-term rental? They're obviously going to merchandise like a short-term rental and hotels will eventually do the same. So second big investment area for us, mid-length is a massive untapped category. A lot of folks about, if you look at some markets, 55% of people in market are now leasing out for a month plus at some point during the year. So it could be shoulder season or regulatory driven, but we think that is probably the most important thing to be good at. That's a, that's a truly new capability for wheelhouse over the next 18 months. And third is if you're really good at understanding what assets are worth in the short-term rental space or what a property should be worth on a monthly basis, you're probably well positioned to help people think about um, underwriting of assets or investments. And that's a little more experimental. We might, we might play that game with other teams. You don't really know what it's going to look like, but I do think that would be the, that'd be the third logical category of investment for us if we were to pursue, but really the first two, the short-term rental kind of like undeniably best in class on the short-term rental side and then mid-length pricing are, are really where we'll kind of execute towards in 2020 and we'll see 2022, sorry. And we'll see where we land. Does is mid-length like pricing and mid-length stays, do you think it's a trend? Like we're just seeing it because I think one, there's a couple things of, you know, people were so cooped up in the early days of COVID. So now they're, you know, wanting to experience a little bit more. They wanted to have, be closer to family and friends or whatever. But then another thing we were talking about in an earlier episode um, that may or not be published before this one goes out, but uh, is that um, people were so unhappy with their life prior to COVID. And then when COVID hit, then they're kind of like that aha moment, like, I don't need to be here. I don't need to like stay in this city that I don't like with a job that I don't like. Um, I can go anywhere in the world um, with a laptop and my backpack and a carry on. Like that's, you know, I got, I was in Mexico for a month. Loved it. Definitely would do it again. Um, So is this a trend? Is that going to get old for travelers or is this something that you think the next generation of travel is going to, to value more because of, again, flexibility with their jobs, flexibility with their, uh, their income and their, their monthly spending, all this other stuff. I think it's definitively the future. I think it's far from a fad. I think so much data bears this out. So let's look at travel patterns. So we're literally double checking data right now because it looks like in major, in many markets, 
mid-link stays are up 250% since the start of the year. They're accelerating coming out of COVID, right? And literally, I, we we should probably talk again in three months just to verify that because like we're looking at the data and we're like, we're triple checking everything now. I'd be like, wait, is this truly going on? But the data yeah. we're seeing suggests that there's an explosion of mid-link still. Part one. Part two, look at some of the fundraisers that have gone on in the mid-link space. Zeus and Blueground and Landing and other companies are raising tons of money. Right? That's kind of part two. Part three, remember all the way back at Lyric when we were talking about how major multifamily companies were inviting us in and saying that even pre-COVID, a third of all their potential residents were coming into the building and saying, I don't want a year unfurnished. Give me some, give me a furnished flex lease. Well, guess what? That was what, five years ago that a third of those uh, potential residents were coming in. So I actually don't think that, I think COVID catalyzed the trend and extended the trend and corporate rentals have been there for decades, right? Corporate rentals have been part of some small part of a multifamily stack for a while. Uh, In some cases, like one or two units in a multi-hundred unit building. But um, this is, you know, it's, it's, I think that thinking mid-length is here to earn like maybe a fad as opposed to the future is similar to thinking that short-term rentals and Airbnb were a fad as opposed to the future. Yeah. And the closer you are to it, the more you're like, hey, the longer people want to believe that, the better. I don't care because we're going to go, we're going to go build technology to power businesses that exist today that are doing tens of millions of dollars in revenue or, or more, hundreds of millions, huge companies that are running today. And, um, I think, I think when you look at, I mean, when you look at what happened during COVID, when you think more about, uh, look five or 10 years down the road and you start to say, okay, so self-driving electric vehicles are going to be here. Cost of transportation in that world plummets. What happens to any good again, as costs plummet, consumption increases, is it going to look crazy to have one home when you could go live in a bunch of amazing places? And maybe people spend a couple of years post-college living a more slightly more nomadic lifestyle, or maybe when they move to a city, they stay for three to six months in different places, or maybe when they retire or their kids go to college or whatever life phase it is are really natural breakpoints where you could start to say, well, people might value freedom to live anywhere in really comfortable settings. So maybe we go from spending a year or two of our lives in flexible accommodations to spending five or 10 years. And that's a 250 to 500% increase in market size. Right. So like, I don't know. I think, I think we'll be looking back at COVID as the start of, or another kind of step toward a more distributed, flexible world. Cause I think that is a pretty appealing lifestyle, certainly at certain phases of people's lives. Um, so no, I, I don't think it's a fad. I think it's clearly the future. I love that. And it ties perfectly. And I, I think you saw the good morning hospitality uh, episode this week uh, with Pat, who is a digital nomad. But the one thing he said, we asked him a question, what's the difference between a remote worker and a digital nomad is that he says a remote worker is about one month to three months, but they usually become a digital nomad where they're one year to five years to more. And a a really cool thing about that is that it's not just for single people in their twenties or thirties. It's actually uh, a thing. Flexible living applies to, uh, couples, single people, uh, older people, 
uh, families, whether they have small children or, or maybe, uh, you know, some, some middle school uh, age kids, uh, it's not just what everyone thinks it is when they look on Instagram with a bunch of teenagers or 20 something year olds, you know, taking selfies on the beach. Um, so it's, it's really cool to think about. Cause like the one thing I'm always curious from, cause I think we saw a lot of fads in the early days of 2020 with COVID. Um, you know, we, we saw drive to markets and everyone was like, Oh man, it's just gonna, it's gonna blow over once airlines and, and international borders open up. Did that happen? I don't think so. I think we're still seeing a pretty strong, heavily drive-to market, uh, even with travel being open, even with mask mandates not being on airlines anymore, unless they enforce it still. All this stuff, like, I, I, I would love to know if you guys are seeing the same thing, but um, that's my favorite question to ask with people that have this data is because who, like, we thought things were going to be fads, but here we are two years later, and it's still thriving pretty, pretty uh, yeah. epically. Yeah. You just made the best case ever for why, I'm not to plug, but why people should invest in data or pricing tools because we don't know whether things are fads or the future until we look at the data. And I mean, right now, if you were if you were saying, hey, let's just prognosticate what 2022 and 2023 looks like, you could say, um, sure, we've had we've had incredibly strong years in in 2021 in particular for a lot of markets. And in 2022, um, certainly certain markets are looking strong. I think we are pretty clearly coming out, at least in people's willingness to travel is up, is, is fair to say. So it could be a really strong year again. Um, there's going to be a lot more supply created in a lot of markets, which, you know, could be could be scary for folks because a lot of professional capital has come in. But the, the unknown thing is um, a lot of people – we're new to vacation rentals and short-term rentals who use them during COVID for longer stays. And they, they would ever stay in a hotel room. And a lot of hotels are flat out closed down. Mm-hmm. And did that exposure to the inventory and maybe their awareness of like, Oh my God, a lot of these are professionally managed and digital access is starting to be a real thing now. And this is way easier than I thought. And the economics of it, if I stay in a large space in particular are better than a hotel room. Like, have so many people gotten exposure and gone back and told their friends and like, we don't know what the demand profile is totally going to look like uh, for this stuff. So like all, all I can say is the data will bear it. The data will tell us over time. What is it? The fad was the future. Any, any, like, I like to say to folks who are like, Oh, well after COVID we're all going to go back to using hotels again. It's like, okay, well the likelihood of that happening is probably at least equal to the likelihood that, actually we swing even more into str being the preferred travel class or preferred place to stay when you travel like both those scenarios are equally likely and i'll make an argument on either side of those um which will sound maybe informed but time will tell time will tell i i think again i i obviously believe pretty deeply that in the short-term rental space overall you have a little bit more of a quicker response rate to any changes which is why as a technologist or a technology company, I'd almost prefer to sell into a fast moving market and then take lessons learned and, and pass them downstream to others who might be slower to adopt uh, or to adapt. So um, yeah, I, I'm definitively excited about um, the continued strength of the short-term rental market, even if we don't see quite the peaks that we've seen in recent years. I agree. And I kind of made this comment earlier to a friend was more or less, I think the reason why hotel, like I, hotels aren't going to go away 
because of short term rentals and short term rentals are going to go away because of hotels. But I think the guests now having the control of what they want to choose to experience is going to be what dictates the, the future, you know, demand or, you know, preference. Right. Um, I typically will stay at a hotel by myself. Uh, but the current prices that the hotels are at right now is insane for a room. So I'm like, I, do I want to spend $400 for a room? With a small kitchen, uh, no real sink other than the bathroom sink, you know, that type of stuff. Not not a real working desk situation, not a great spot to podcast, whatever. Uh, or do I want to pay $400 a night or less, maybe, depending on the property or the management company, uh, for a house where I'm comfortable. I have a place to, to lounge, to eat, to sleep, to work, uh, all that stuff. I And I'm able to like choose if I want to experience people. Do I want to communicate with the team on the back end, ask them questions about where to go to eat or drink and experience, or do I want to just get my automated message for check-in and let that be the case? Uh, hotels don't give you that option right now. You have you have to be in a queue. You have to go to a front desk. You have to talk to a person, and you have to be in a room that's not ideal for living. Right? It's it's great for in and out, but when you're yeah. trying to you know do what we do. Um, yeah, it just becomes, yeah. Well, you even think about, um, I mean, where people buy rooms and what they're looking for when they shop is there's kind of, uh, well, some inter in interesting aspects of that. But I guess what I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by and what we used to say at Lyric was it's pretty creepy to share a picture of your hotel room. Not many people do that on social media. However, like people are sharing their, the pictures of their lyric kitchen and creative spaces. And they would, they would make TikTok videos and Instagram videos and other things. And there's no reason why short-term rental companies, vacation rental companies and any hotel company wouldn't look at all of these kind of social media sites as incredible potential distribution channels. Right? So if you're like, okay, well, the medium of short-term rentals is just much more easy and fun to communicate. And, and you talking about podcasting, made me think of this a little bit, like it'd be cool to have, a, a, an amazing short-term rental as your backdrop during a podcast or a video cast here, it would be kind of weird to have a hotel room, I think. And that's just like, okay, so that means people are going to be exposed via media repeatedly to these short-term rental spaces. No reason you will couldn't put a link in your podcast saying like, want to book the place where I'm podcasting from click right here. And it's a new consumption slash distribution channel. So I think when you look at it and that, that got us really excited about Lyric back in the day where it's like, Oh, well the consumer trends of social media even point to eventually people all choosing this inventory type that's more unique, more distributed, more bespoke to them. It's a statement about who they are as opposed to a place to stay. And that's where like you look across almost any trend and you're like, okay, this new thing is better. And I love it. Will you and I have talked a little bit about back in the day, our inventory was called alternative accommodations. Yep. And I didn't make it much of that for a couple of years. Until I now today will state that like, oh, if you're an entrepreneur and someone calls a category alternative, run towards it. Alternative energy. Guess what? Uh, renewable, aka renewable is, is going to be a thing. Uh, alternative bands, clothing, et cetera. Those all went mainstream. Alternative is almost a signaling word that society has for things that are probably are about to go mainstream in some way. So when hotels... We're calling our inventory alternative from their perspective, 
they thought of it probably in the wrong light, that this is only appealing to a small segment of the population. From an entrepreneur's perspective, you hear alternative and you're like, some meaningful percentage of folks are starting to express that they want something different. Let's address those needs and build for that. Well, yeah, I was going to say uh, alternative is just what we use when we don't really know what to call something. Uh, <laughs> and I like, I, I like no one knows what to, or knew what to call short-term rentals or vacation rentals. And they're like, they just looked at as Airbnb or, or whatever it may be. Um, podcasts is alternative media. And, um, I like to compare the two to short-term rentals a lot because I think there's a lot of similarities when you look at it, we have a hosting platform, which is like a property management software. Uh, we have distribution within that, which goes to Spotify, Apple, Google, you name it. Um, social media then becomes a, another channel that you can use to drive traffic, which again, a lot of short-term rentals can do. There's a lot of similarities. And so I think it's really funny. Like I've never had anyone say, if you hear your segment, if you're an entrepreneur, be called alternative run towards it because, uh, Obviously, we just don't know what to call it, and it's about to become mainstream. So that's like a really good way to phrase it. I love that a lot. Um, uh, it really gets my wheels turning. I, I like that. Uh, so thank you for, for that golden nugget. Um, man, okay, so I know I have tons of questions, and we've been going for a while. But I want to kind of we, – we've answered the question of what's next. We we're, we're, You kind of touched on the two points of the next round of investment for Wheelhouse, you know, you know being the current STR market, uh, diving into that and then multi or not multifamily, um, mid length, mid, mid length stays. Sorry. I knew it was an M. Um, <laughs> and so for, for you, what, what are outside of mid length being not a trend? And it's probably something here to stay. What could you say your biggest lesson in learning from this big raise was for you, for your team, um, that, you know, listeners can can really understand, when it comes to the story of Wheelhouse, the story of you and the team, uh, which big shout out to uh, John DeRelay and Amelia, who I become good friends with outside of uh, just podcasting and stuff. Uh, we all, uh, I really like you know the the people that you have uh, on board. So uh, yeah, that would be my final question to you. You know, big big takeaway from the raise uh, this last couple uh, couple months. I think the. The, re, the the lessons that are um, probably most applicable, I'll, I'll say this. Um, first is, you know, we, we had been lucky at Lyric to raise quite a bit of capital. And by, by lucky, I, I mean only that we'd had success in going out and sharing our vision with others. And this fundraise at Wheelhouse was going to look a lot different. It was going to be smaller. It was going to be harder. It, we had this kind of baggage of, you know, have we survived this thing, but what next? And um, the lesson, one of the lessons that I think is valuable for everyone is like rejection is inevitable. When you go out and pitch, Wheelhouse got so many no's. So many no's. And we were okay okay with that because eventually a lot of those no's turned into yeses as we continue to kind of improve the potential restructure in the organization and offering clarity to people about what was going to happen. So the, um, I talked to people who were like, Oh, I'm going to talk to 10 people for a round. I talked to probably 200. So for entrepreneurs, like spread your net so wide 
And don't be afraid to go back to people who told you no if your narrative changes. And our narrative happened to change more than any narrative I've ever fundraised around. But it was – it almost like – it like repeat going back to those people again and again and in a, in a way that was like um, pretty humbling is so essential. Like number one lesson in fundraising, swallow your ego. ego get prepared to – get to – Prepare to take a ton of no's and smile about it and learn something from it. Every no is an opportunity. That's part one. Um, part two is like, again, the lesson that I'll always pass on to entrepreneurs is never waste a fundraise. Um, part of the reason we, we talked about talked Oh, sorry. I was going to say we talked about that a little bit off, off recording once. And uh, that was a big, like, wow, thing for me. So I would love to have you explain that a little bit. Yeah. Never waste a fundraise means... You might be embarrassed about the state of your business or embarrassed to reach out to someone, but I, a sure way to get a meeting and learn from someone really intelligent is to say, hey, we're raising around. We're really passionate about this business. Here are three data points for you. Are you interested in a 15-minute or 30-minute conversation? And through that, I mean, we, we've now met hundreds of investors, and, and guess who's ready to – give money to the company now that we're restructured. Some of those folks who, who even pass on this round, they're like, oh my God, you pulled it off. Like, let's go. So never waste a fundraise is the notion that you, um, even though you always think about raising your current round, you actually need to think about raising your next round as well. It's really unusual for get people to give you money within two months. So really you're having conversations now that set you up for that fundraise in two years. Fundraising isn't done in two months, it's done in two years. And, and you want to have those conversations now. So never waste a fundraise is you actually have an opportunity and platform to tell a bunch of people your story, even if they're going to say no, that no eventually is going to turn into a yes, especially if they know you better. And like go out there and meet as many people and learn as much about your business as you possibly can. And when people tell you no, ask them why. What were you hoping to hear that you didn't see? So the more you can say, I'm not going to waste this fundraise, it's an opportunity, and even a no is an opportunity, the better. I love right? that. Yeah. Um, and then I think um, the last thing I'll share here, which I, I is just truly one of the things I think about when fundraising all the time, especially as people go from, call it angel rounds, into looking at real venture raising. Is, is this a reminder to folks that as soon as you get into the venture world, you're not actually pitching the people just in front of you. You're pitching the people who are not in the room, right? You are pitching a partner or a teammate who needs to stand up at their next investment meeting and say, hey, we've talked to 50 teams this week, but Wheelhouse is the team that we need to go double down on this week and we need to go spend time with them. And the only way they're going to do that is if you make your business so simple and you illustrate the potential, you know, how you can go achieve this almost impossible challenge of building your business into a huge business that's going to overcome every competitor and all the incumbents. The only way to, to position a partner to stand up and tell that story is by figuring out how you can simplify your story so much that they can walk out of the room and tell it to someone else. Mm. So um, it takes a ton of practice. It is a performance art that we can talk more about, but it's kind of like uh, entrepreneurs, if they want to go out and raise, it's a reminder that like you need to simplify your story as much as possible. And Wheelhouse had all this baggage that we need to simplify, simplify, simplify into something where it's like, you know what? This all makes sense and it's easy and we're going to look smart by spending more time with you and ultimately investing in you as well. So simplification is, is the key. 
That was really good. And I think you probably, I think it was you and hopefully I'm quoting it correctly, but I think you told me, cause I was asking you questions about fundraising. What does this look like? When should you do it? And you, you stated, you know, never waste, waste a fundraise. Um, but I think the big thing that I never thought of when it came to fundraising was that I think the, the, and please correct me if I'm misquoting, but, um, is that the the investors don't really remember the numbers and the data and all the things that you share. They remember the story, AKA making it so simple that they could go tell it to anybody else, uh, whether it's their, their family at home or other investor friends that they know. Um, that's the thing that they're going to remember is because they could tell it uh, versus numbers and data that they will probably have in one ear and out the other. Um, and I found that really interesting because I never thought of storytelling being a big yeah. part of fundraising. Let me, I'll, I'll clarify that because that's, that's close to right. And um, so I, I think what I was probably sharing with you is um, I think a lot of early stage investing is emotional mm. as opposed to rational. An investor, you really need to make an emotional connection with investor first. So they'll even take the time to lean in and look at the numbers and take that emotional response and actually say, oh, this is actually a rational investment and I can rationalize it to others. But if they don't have that emotional connection first and they don't be like, wow, I want to work with this entrepreneur for five years. I want to build with them. I'm willing to go to bat for their name, you know, in front of my whole team. I'm willing to say that this is the team we should spend a lot of time with. If you don't make that emotional connection, you're not going to get through the rational part at all. And so you're right. I, I do. I do think, especially if you are pitching angels, you know, angels decision-making framework might be more like instead of pitching their partners, they might call a friend or an expert in the category and say, Hey, I've got a good feeling about this team or entrepreneur. Like, what do you think? But they're going to try, you know, if, if they can, if they can't articulate your business, if they can't say, well, wheelhouse is X for Y or whatever mm -hmm. it is. If they say, um, you know, I don't know what wheelhouse actually does, but I like Andrew. I think I'm going to give him money. Like no investor ever said that. <laughs> No investor ever said that. They, they said, hey, this is a really cool business. It's this. What do you think about that? Um, so like that kind of combines the notion of you need an emotional connection where someone's going to go to bat for you and really believe in you. And you need a simple story when, when they go share your story with the next person they run into who's going to validate whether they should spend their time on this, which is a lot of, a lot of folks do. They need to be able to tell your story well or else, again, they're, they're going to keep quiet and they're going to tell the other story they remember more. So it's a little bit of a convergence of those two ideas, Will, of like really simple stories sell and the emotional connection is super important because every early stage investment is slightly irrational. Mm. It is. But if the emotional connection is not there, no way they get to making a rational decision to give you money. That's good. That's really good. I'm definitely going to save that clip for like future everything. <laughs> uh, super good. Well, Andrew, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I always enjoy getting to talk to you, whether we're recording or not. And, um, I don't know if you, you, we ask this question, every guest, right. Is if you could have the listeners, that listened to this episode and gotten to this point right now, if you could have one link to have in the show notes so they can click to learn more about you, anything we've talked about, uh, what would that link be? It'd be anything in the world. Wow. I love that. Um, I know you're a big fan of LinkedIn, so 
We could always do your LinkedIn. We could do the website. Uh, we could do anything. It, it could be something not even related to wheel, wheelhouse. So the link I would share is a link to a book. Okay. And the book, the book is um, a really simple book that I read when I, when I got, came out of school and I didn't know a lot about entrepreneurship yet. I didn't know a lot what the working world looked like. And I kind of love the cover and a few other pages in the book, but the book is called, it's not how good you are. It's how good you want to be. Mm. And that is the thing I've, I've bought the book for probably hundreds of people. Now I've gone back to my college and, taught some entrepreneurship courses and bought the book for all the students. And I really believe that that message is my favorite message out there, especially for entrepreneurs, because you're all building in the unknown. And we all have times where we feel exposed and in over our heads and we have imposter syndrome and the simple notion of it's not how good you are. It's how good you want to be, which is a book by Paul Arden, a famous advertising executive is the summation of my favorite idea in the world, which is like, how badly do you want it? And how much are you willing to work for it? And you know where you're going. And that's all you really need. And I think I, I share that just because I, I love entrepreneurship. I think great entrepreneur, I think entrepreneurship can set a lot of people free. I think it's an amazing idea. I hope to empower as many people as possible to take that journey as well. And it's a journey of is scary and it's imperfect. But I think that notion that we had in the back of our minds at Wheelhouse was, hey, it's not how good we are today. It's how good we want to be. And we think, I think about that. We think about that a lot. Um, I would hope that people wouldn't go learn more about Wheelhouse. I would hope they would go read that book and learn more about themselves and have the confidence in themselves to keep building because I think it unlocks amazing things. Not to throw every past guest under the bus, but I think that was the best response we could have ever gotten for that part, that last question. So thank you for that. Um, I do want to make one quick announcement to anyone who's listening, watching the live stream right now. We are about to go into a Q and a, a live Q and a. So there's going to be a link in this stream where you're going to be able to join us on video on microphone recorded, uh, to ask any questions to Andrew about entrepreneurship, short-term rentals, you know, structuring a, a raise around debt and capital and funding or not funding, but, um, disbursement of capital, all this stuff. So make sure you grab that link right now and join us on the live Q&A. If you're listening to the audio version, then we will post the live Q&A of anything that happened in that conversation in a future episode to come out right after this. So, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time again to be on the podcast and to do this with us. And I'm super excited to once again have you on the podcast in, in the future. Thanks so much, Will. Fun as always, bud. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to our show partners for making Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast possible. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would love to connect with you outside of the podcast. So you can follow us on all of our social media channels for daily hospitality content or find us on slicktalkthepodcast.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm your host, Will Slickers, and we will see you guys all again next week.
I've said this on Slick Talk many times before, and as time goes on, it becomes more and more true. Operators have been so used to multiple logins, different dashboards, and overall segregated data points for their hospitality brand. I'm proud to say this is no longer going to be the case for the industry. As a podcast partner, Journey MOS is made for operators by operators. One dashboard, one solution to keep your business in shape and ahead of the competition. If you think this is too good to be true, then you need to go to journey.com. That is J-U-R-N-Y.com to learn how Journey MOS can get you ahead of the big players in your market. And now back to the episode. What's up, everybody? If you've gotten this far into the episode of Slick Talk, the hospitality podcast, then you are amazing, and thank you so much for tuning in. We want to send you two places really quickly. If you can, check out the show notes and click the hospitality.fm link. Check out all of our other shows on the podcast network. And don't forget, if you have someone that you want to hear on the podcast, then fill out the guest fill-out form so that way we can get them on the show. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy another episode of Slick Talk, the Hospitality Podcast. Podcast. 